Are you gonna say your thing? Everyone in the chair has their thing. I would like the ship to go. Now. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between the Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton downing Klingon blood wine as if he's Cam Smith back in his uh, university days. <laughs> oh, you know me so well. The university life I lived, I believe I've talked about it on the show, that it was spent sitting in the lunchrooms watching Star Trek episodes on my laptop alone. <laughs> hey, don't forget, you would drink Coca-Cola as well. That is true. That is true. And we are here this week to... Welcome back, Strange New Worlds, with the premiere of Season 2, The Broken Circle. Uh, Cam, I'll say this. I've never been so delighted to just sit down and look forward to Star Trek. Like, the anticipation I had going into Season 2, I think it exceeded the anticipation I had going into Season 1. Like, I, I was a little bit like, I, I didn't know if Season 1 would be a disappointment. But, man, I was, I've never been this excited to watch an episode of Star Trek since, like, the final season of Deep Space Nine. Like, I just, like, I, I was so looking forward to this. And this was just, it was just fun being in this universe again, this pocket of the Star Trek universe. And, uh, like, uh, strong episodes, st stuff we can critique as well. But um, I think this is, a, this is a good way to kick things off. I saw a um, line someone said, it was just in, like, a comment section where they said, like, this show makes me even angrier at Star Trek Discovery. And I like <laughs> Star Trek Discovery. Like, just the... The show's ability to just make you kind of fall in love with this crew and have them bounce off each other in such an organic, fun way. It's the sort of thing I think we all wanted from Star Trek Discovery. Because it's not like we didn't like Stamets and Culber and Saru and all these various characters. But you never got this just totally at-ease hangout factor you get on this show. And this show just makes it look so easy. The show feels plucky, you know? Versus, like, kind of heavy, you know? Like, I often, like, I'll watch like discovery and it just kind of feels like or, or even like picard it just kind of feels like oh that was a heavy sit uh, not not with strange new worlds except for that uh <laughs> the renaissance episode <laughs> that was a heavy sit um but you know like the weightiness that um you know discovery or picard in its darker moments really held over its storytelling it was like you cannot have fun these are serious matters. Well, we just watched an episode where it's like a false flag operation that could start a war, that could put, you know, a lot of people at peril, and they made it fun and bouncy and great to hang out with these characters, and it didn't forsake any of the stakes or kind of the, um, like, just the conflict and the drama of what they were trying to get across. Yeah, well, why don't we dive into it here? I... So many little things. I, let's just start with Commander Pelia and the performance from one Carol Kane. <laughs> I, um, I, I, at first, I was like, oh, this is kind of quirky and delightful. Not something we've ever kind of seen before in Star Trek. And I'm all for it. And um, what, what is she, a Lottamite? Is that what the, she, oh, she was called? Uh, Lanthamite? I think it's Lanthamite or something. Sure, okay. Yeah. Uh, let's go with that. I was like, that's an intriguing idea. You know, like uh, kind of embedding themselves in uh, Earth, you know, and uh, they look human. Like, that, that's very cool. And he's go through that. I'm wondering if like she can sustain this kind of quirky delivery <laughs> for an entire season. You know, I'm intrigued <laughs> by what the character can bring. I like Carol Kane. Uh, like watching her. Look, I saw her. I watched her on Kimmy Schmidt for like five or six seasons doing kind of a Carol Kane thing. This is a mm -hmm. little bit of a different twist on the Carol Kane thing. I, I loved her on Kimmy Schmidt. Um, so, um, I'm intrigued by Pelia, but by the end of the episode, I was going like, huh, okay, let's, uh, let, let, let's peel back some other layers here. Seems to be a bit of a pol uh, polarizing character out of the gate. I've seen some definite people say that uh, they were annoyed by the character, but I appreciated that they took, you know, Anson Mount has said at conventions and various other places about the swings they took this season. They didn't play it safe with this character. They brought Carol Kane in. They did not try to clamp down kind of the quirkiness that she brings to so many of her roles. 
they really told her, I think, to run wild, and she very much invented a alien personality without any of the, you know, bumpy-headed, you know, applications or anything like that. It felt like a... I, I kept thinking of, like, Guinan, but more of, like, this kind of quirky academic type character you know someone who as you said has existed on earth for a long period of time wants excitement has been kind of just working in the academic world for too long um but there the accent it's a little bit the thing it reminded me a little bit of uh was deanna troy in like early tng <laughs> where it's like you know you could tell marina Sirtis was struggling with that made-up accent on that show carol kane I don't think she's struggling. I think she is very much letting her freak flag fly with this one. And I will be curious how much they utilize her in the season because she was not, you know, opening credits, just listed her um, in the, you know, credits at the end of the show. Uh, so I'm curious how many episodes she pops up in and how much the accent becomes the defining aspect of the character as opposed to like more character growth and hanging out with her. I sure hope it's not the defining uh, aspect of her character. Uh, it's funny you bring up Troy, because I kind of got Loxana vibes to a certain degree. Not not totally, mm. but it's the... Um, look, she's bringing attention to herself. I'm intrigued by what comes next. I'm not ready to bash this character at all. No. I, I'm very intrigued by with this... Um, <laughs> she's not a Luddite. That's uh, Owashikin from Discovery, but what this uh, <laughs> Lathanamite or Lathanamite or I, 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 I already forget what she is. Yeah, I looked it up. It does not exist previous to uh, Strange New Worlds, so I guess we're going to learn more about what this species uh, actually is, and that'll be interesting because I think that's something that Strange New Worlds has been quite good at, which is it works in fan service. There's some fan service in this episode for sure, but they could have easily just said, oh, yeah, she's a member of a species we know well from the you know previous Star Trek you know, series, but they didn't. They're creating something new, and uh, when this series is said and done, we will have a mythology of Lanthemite to uh, grow off from. Maybe Lanthemite is the what Gary Seven's species called, Cam. Okay, maybe she's a supervisor. Believe me, that did go through my head, but then I was like, they can't. They can't. After the supervisors <laughs> of uh, Picard season two, like, just let it go. But it is interesting how many alien species were operating on Earth uh, undercover. Okay. Um, I also want to jump over to Spock in command, which was fun to see. Um, but I, I, I'm really kind of sick of the um, Star Trek trope of let's hijack this <laughs> ship or let's disobey direct orders don't worry, we'll solve everything in the end and we'll be given a nice pat on the head and it's no big deal. Yeah, Robert April was very forgiving of this. Uh, I mean, I guess he is, you know, Robert April is writing the book of Starfleet uh, discipline that will very much apply to Worf in the future on TNG. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I do appreciate though, like, okay, you, you end the episode with April saying like, okay, well, you... you, you somehow save the day that's fine and then he turns to another out admiral and you know kind of hinting at an ongoing story and there's some sort of gorn threat going on here this is how you kind of plant seeds for some sort of serialized arc it, it's not a cliffhanger that is kind of this frustrating mystery box thing this is how you just do kind of these more in the background ongoing serialized storytelling so if this is a, a little bit more serialized than last season fine by me and i i just don't want like this 10-hour movie and i have no reason to believe that's what the creators think we want either as viewers no and i would suspect we don't check in with this story tell maybe the halfway point of the season or something like that um that would be my guess uh, just judging from last season the way they kind of doled out you know gorn's story but um you know like if this was discovery or picard you would have had one of those klingon slash former uh, Starfleet uh, members get captured or something like that and say, you don't know what's coming. There's a <laughs> yeah. greater enemy at work. And like, that's all you'd be left with. And I appreciated that they were like, nope, there seems to be a conflict potentially brewing. And they had the little Gorn ship on their, on their map. And it's like, okay, there we go. They told us what is basically uh, hanging in the balance and uh, what we can look forward to for the season. So we had this false flag operation that much of the plot centered on, and I look, I, I delighted in being around kind of this mixture of Klingons in which, 
if they want to kind of bridge whatever gaps exist between you know discovery uh, tng and the original series about how <laughs> this <laughs> this is a species full of various different mutations i think you got to follow up with whatever uh, star trek legacy spin-off series of seven of nine in which you have klingons that appear exactly like the original series klingons and no comment on it yeah I, star trek discovery really threw a wrench in the works on that didn't it with the klingons enterprise did a decent enough job explaining why those original series Klingons look the way they did, and you're like, oh, okay, like clearly not planned from day one, but I'm willing to go along with this uh, canon they've created. And then Discovery rolls around and just creates this entirely new species of Klingon on the show, and it's like, well, we're back to square one, folks. But I did like the way they kind of mixed this up. You know, it worked for me visually, just seeing these Klingons, I felt like Klingons. But I could also see these Klingons, the way they've, you know, just refined them on Strange New Worlds. I could totally picture them standing next to, like, next to Laurel, for example. And I don't think it would bother me very much. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I mean, yeah, we saw some Klingons with elongated skulls and mm -hmm. some Klingon-esque hair. And then we saw some Klingons that reminded us more of kind of what, like, an updated TNG version of the makeup would look like nowadays. Although it was, you could tell it's still kind of a distinct kind of deal versus kind of the updated wharf makeup that they did for Star Trek Picard as well. I mean, honestly, I thought the look of the uh, Klingon commander, uh, oh, okay, I'm sorry, but seeing that D7 battle cruiser like in oh, yeah. action, oh, that was so amazing. That was <laughs> so amazing. I, I can't wait to see more of this stuff. We, we got kind of hints of it in season two of Star Trek Discovery, but it never really paid off. I'm glad that we're here. And honestly, I, I like the fact that we are addressing the Klingon war. You know, it, it's something that, I don't think we felt was given like it's due back in season one of Discovery. Um, yeah. But guess what? These kinds of things have consequences. We have, you know, Ortega, uh, Ortega's like alluding to like her own experience during the Klingon war. And I, I'm glad like, and it's not messy from a storytelling perspective. I'm sure if you're a new viewer to this, you can understand that. Oh yeah. I'm sure Starfleet and the Klingons have been at war before. So I, I don't know. I, I'm just saying this is an episode. It's kicking off things in totally the right way, hitting the right spot. That Klingon commander, he looked awesome. I liked the performance there. And watching Spock hung over the next morning was fantastic. <laughs> I think this was a really smart way to bring the Klingons into a story with Strange New Worlds. I don't know how much interest this show has in like doing a lot of Klingon stories over the course of its run. Uh, I guess we'll have to wait and see on that. But I think this was just like an interesting way to bring them in where it's not just like Klingon antagonists. Like they created a story that allowed you to have like a multifaceted look at Klingons where, yes, there are some that are um, kind of a problem here, that part of this false flag operation. But then there's other Klingons that aren't and kind of showing like the diversity of what Klingons could be. Uh, and I think also set up some interesting conflicts we can continue with down the road. But I like the way they just had like Spock drinking with the Klingons at the end. It was a fun way of ending an episode about the Klingons. It doesn't fall back on kind of the more traditional original series kind of idea of like, well, the Klingons are our enemies still. And I also appreciate when you are able to depict a species as something more than just kind of monolithic. Mm. They, they did that a little bit in Picard with the Romulans and kind of um, distinguishing between kind of the ridged foreheaded Romulans versus the uh, smooth headed ones. Um, you know, and, and doing the Klingon stuff, like, I'm just saying this is a little bit better than Mandalorian Season 3, where it's like, I wear a helmet. You don't wear a helmet. <laughs> you know? um, I found this much more interesting. I think the species that needs to get that treatment, though, making, a, making them a little less monolithic would be the Cardassians. I think they're due. We, we had some various Cardassian characters that mm -hmm. um, obviously their intentions and motivations were different from kind of the standard um, central command, you know. But um, I, I just feel like the Cardassians are due for one of those TV series out there to, to kind of pick up the mantle and, and, and really kind of carry them into kind of a, a, a new frontier, so to speak. Yeah, like have we really gotten a Cardassian character? We had... Um the uh president of the federation in discovery who was half <laughs> uh half cardassian or is she a quarter i don't know i can't I remember tell. <laughs> she said her family had um uh luxury like vacation property on earth's moon despite the fact that earth was isolated from uh, the federation for a century or so 
That is true, yes. But okay. is that the only new Cardassian character we've gotten on new Star Trek? Yeah. We saw like a couple Cardassians in the backgrounds of uh, Discovery Season 3, 4. Yep. Uh, and I'm sure, okay, has there been a new Cardassian character in Lower Decks? I don't think so. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm just scan- scanning my memory banks and not drawing anything. The, the only Cardassian stuff I remember is them bringing up like, uh, didn't, what, wasn't Boimler or Freeman practicing a Cardassian dance and then their uh, mission was uh, diverted somewhere else? Yeah, uh, I think we may have also had just like, you know, a Cardassian on screen on Lower Decks, um, but I don't think there was anything where it actually focused on them as an actual character. Like, maybe in, like, an episode, like, where, like, I don't know, like, season one where they went to that market, maybe there was, like, a Cardassian wandering around, but that's about the gist of it. And I I don't think there was anything on Prodigy, was there? Don't call me on it. Don't call me on it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, So, okay, here's a problem. And that we would love to see, say, the Cardassians featured in Strange New Worlds. But I don't want it to come at the expense of them developing their own little pocket of the universe here. And, and like, at what point does it just feel like nonstop kind of Easter eggs? And, you know, I, I just wonder if maybe the better venue would be, I don't know, Starfleet Academy show. What if there's a Cardassian cadet? Yep. Uh, you know, something like that. Whereas, uh, you know, I like, but the thing is, I'd love to see the Cardassians in this era. We don't know them from this era. And there was a point in which that uh, the Cardassian Union wasn't this totalitarian state. It was much more about arts and science and culture. And then I think they had established there's some sort of famine. And that's really when the military came to dominate society. And, you know, it'd be interesting to see the Cardassians at a different point in their history. Yeah. And I know like Akiva Goldsman has said, like, they're not going to be necessarily fully tied into canon with like a very strict iron fist like they're willing to kind of be a little bit flexible with things you know the way that say i don't know we had a whole episode here about spock in charge of a mission well we saw in galileo 7 spock not necessarily the best leader whereas you didn't really get that as much here i'm totally fine with that if it works for the story they're telling and i'm totally cool with them introducing Cardassians in a way that is compelling to watch on this particular series that maybe doesn't fully line up 100% with what we know in TNG or the original series and what have you. So I think there's like room to do that. I do wonder though, like to me, when I think of the Cardassians, they feel so much more of a 24th century uh, species. I always think of them like grounded so much in DS9 and TNG. I, I can't almost imagine them in a show with, like, the energy of, like, a strange new world. So, we, okay. Uh, I always like these hypotheticals. We saw Ferengi in mm-hmm. uh, Enterprise, for example. Yeah, yeah. And what if we saw them come up, like, do you think the Ferengi would feel out of place in this time period, in this pocket of the Strange New Worlds Star Trek universe? I think Ferengi would actually work quite well on Strange New Worlds. Weren't they kind of more of a mysterious sort of species as well? I think they would have to be interacting. Although, remember, like, uh, it was kind of implied that we'd never seen the Gorn before. Uh, yeah. The original series, and now they're popping up quite a bit here. You know, I, I'm sure you could kind of bend things a little bit. Yeah, I mean, we had the trouble with Edward, the Tribble uh, short, that we really enjoyed, that the world hated, apparently. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but, like, that was kind of a little bit loose, perhaps, with uh, the Triple backstory stuff. That's fine. I really enjoyed that story, and they did some interesting things with Tribbles there. So, I'm okay if they want to work in, like, a Ferengi story that maybe, like, a character uh, encounters Ferengi, and it's not necessarily going to have massive ramifications for where this show is and what you know the entire crew would know what Ferengi are at this point in time because like I don't know I got Spock serving on a ship with La'an who's you know an ancestor of Khan it's not like Spock was saying to Kirk at any point like hey you know I used to serve with uh you know Khan's like um descendant like that's not a thing that ever happened so I'm cool with it if it works like I guess I'm not gonna be precious unless it's really like it's kind of like breaking canon for the sake of something that's like, you know, like stupid or just done entirely as lazy fan service. Speaking of Milan, 
her mission is complete. She's reunited that ward with uh, the parents there, which is a happy ending. Um, that child's uh, not even sure if it's the same actress, but looks like she's grown about like uh, a, a couple inches <laughs> in the uh, year and a half between the filming of those respective seasons. Uh, good on them, though. Um, I'm still wondering this, Cam. Have they justified why they had to make Laan a descendant of Khan? Other than like, like, like we want a character who has you know genetic augmentation, and mm-hmm. uh, even though they're making it a big deal that Illy- Illyria has genetic augmentation, but or sorry, not Illyria, but uh, that uh, that uh, Una Chen Riley is an Illyrian, and she yeah. lied about it, and she's genetically augmented as well. Like to me, it's just getting a little convoluted, especially when we have what like half the cast with super strength right now and i'm just kind of like like i they haven't justified to me why they decided to make her a descendant of khan at this point i think this was an issue and we talked about this when we did the revisit um of season one on 4k which is that uh akiva goldsman on the commentary said that they basically took the number one character of the cage and split her in half between the Rebecca Romaine character as seen on Strange New Worlds and Laan. And I feel like they wanted this genetic uh, enhancement aspect as both a feature of both characters, but also something for the two of them to bond over and have a relationship. I, I'm i with you, though. Like, the con thing, I go, like, why? There was plenty of, I'm sure, genetic manipulation going on at the time of con. Why does it have to be specifically con? It could be like a follower of Khan. It could be an entirely different, you know, warlord group or something like that off to the side. Like, I don't quite understand the decision making there other than to fall back on like a buzzword that fans know. Um, have, you know, not not to crap on your point, which of course I would never do <laughs> please, that, Please, please, go nuts. <laughs> <laughs> um, have Laon and uh, Number One ever bonded over their genetic augmentation? Have they? I think they did discuss Gus it right in Ghost of Illyria. I w- wasn't it only known to Pike though that uh yeah that uh number one was genetically augmented. I like I'm guessing um like Mabenga or uh, Nurse Chapel would know because she had that mitochondrial effect on everyone's genetics over that light virus. Yeah, but. I don't like I don't have recollections of them bonding over this shared I'm just saying like how many people are is she going to keep this a secret from you know before like word really does get out uh, among Starfleet officers and look she is arrested she's in detention looking to strike some for, sort of plea deal but Pike needs to find her the best lawyer in the Federation first um I want to get back to the lawyer in a second but I <laughs> it's interesting because like they set up that Laon had this connection with Una because Una had basically helped her after she escaped the Gorn. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that's a good foundation for a relationship, but it is weird that she saved someone who was also genetically <laughs> altered to be super strong just like her. And what a coincidence. Yeah, it is a total coincidence, and it does make me go, like, why? Because, like, outside of, like, a fight scene or two, have we seen a lot of reasons why La'an, like why this was necessary to write into the character. No, not at all. <laughs> like, uh, unless yeah. like we want to be really impressed by how much she can uh, swig that Klingon blood wine. Oh, the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark sequence? Well, that may, sure. You know, like yeah, it, yeah. it's like, I, I would assume she, she's a very diminutive actress. I'm yeah. assuming it, it's a result of her genetic enhancements that she's able to do that. I would think so, yeah. Yeah, and I thought that was kind of a fun way to pay tribute to Karen Allen's introduction in Raiders. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I guess, like, the thing is, the Lon character is so compelling at this point that, like, I'm on board for what they want to do. But it's, like, those little details that I think we had issues with before the show even started. They haven't quite resolved why they made those decisions. They've just managed to cast someone who's incredibly um, charismatic in the role. They've given that character a lot to do on the show that was dramatically interesting, but it's like kind of those details on kind of the periphery aren't quite adding up yet. There's other characters out there where they had like these kind of character defining details that were kind of like forgotten about rather quickly. You know, I'm trying to think like who'd be like kind of the perfect example. Like it's not as if they forgot about Kess only having a lifespan of 
like nine years, but it's like yeah. they tried to write around it and you know kind of solve that problem at a certain point. They were consistent with Jordy and uh, him not having like uh, normal vision. Uh, there, there must be like other, oh, you know, like Tom Paris being the bad boy. Um, sure. He very quickly was not the bad boy, I'd say, by uh, yeah. you know, late season one. What else is there? I would say the Picard hating children thing definitely thawed pretty quickly. Like, he always had sort of discomfort, but I wouldn't say he was as hostile towards children as he appeared in, like, season one. Sure. Um, oh, you know what? We were talking about it earlier. Uh, the uh, the Troy accent was meant to be the defining <laughs> characteristic of her, and that uh, quickly faded away, too. Yeah, I mean, very few characters are as well-defined and nailed just head-on like Worf in Season 1 TNG. <laughs> I, I mean, boom, like right out of the gate. Yeah. Was there anything weird with Data in Season 1 that they kind of dropped off on? Well, he was, like, <laughs> he was Stranger. He wasn't as uh, cute, so to speak, mm -hmm. to, like, uh, watch on screen. Yeah. And actually, I mean, a character who did take a little bit to figure out spock acts a little strange in his first few episodes of the original series there's some smirks and smiles um but also i don't feel that's as like intentional that's not writing a specific detail into a character and kind of just moving away from that in terms of what makes them unique on the show as we're talking about with lawn i think the spock one is more just not having necessarily what a vulcan is clamped down 100 percent yeah i can't really think of like another good example of like a trait that was kind of dropped off on I don't know if it's so much of a character trait as as it is dynamics within a show, but you know, Voyager was pitched as kind of a Starfleet having to uh, work with the Maquis, who mm. you know they, they have different ways of doing things. And uh, other than Bolana calling Harry Kim Starfleet a couple times in season one, um, they they got along pretty well quite quickly, especially when it comes to the Chakotay v Janeway factor. Well, you bring up Chakotay. Um, that character had a little bit of fire to him in the <laughs> premiere. Uh, that fire was very quickly doused. <laughs> yeah. I, same with Tuvok as well. Like, it, it yeah. was weird. Like, Tuvok was like, um, like, I think the caretaker, I think the main character in that episode was Tom Paris, followed by Janeway, and then followed by Tuvok. Tuvok had a lot of great stuff to do. Yep, he did. And then what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, he seemed, uh, well... A pretty lifeless on Voyager. I did appreciate his appearance on Picard, though. Uh, you know, he was, I think, more compelling in that uh, latest season of Picard than he was through a big chunk of Voyager. Um, I was just thinking, though, like, Neelix was very much introduced in season one. It's like, this man is going to be our guide through the galaxy. And then that kind of faded away at a certain point as well, because he reached the boundaries of how far he traveled. And again, I, I don't know if this is like a trait that was intentional yeah. for the character that they quickly excised, but so much it is just kind of finding the character within the show. But Rom started off as like a real jerk, not not just a little bit of a jerk, but like the definition mm -hmm. of a total a-hole. And um, he came around. I, I think they they realized like what like Max Gronacek's strengths were playing that character. And I, I think, you know, they, they, they found Quark, or I should say they found Rom, you know, pretty quickly, or at least by getting into the second season. Yeah, it wouldn't have worked. Like, by season seven, it would have been basically like Nog needing to go to Starfleet to escape his father. And uh, it would not have worked. That doesn't have the kind of the feel good vibes that DS9 tried to generate among its characters. The situations around them could be very severe and scary and dark, but you didn't want like the characters to have that level of like uh, just unfortunate circumstances that you really had to uh delve into yeah oh uh and i forgot the uh the, the uh kira um she had long hair in the mm, premiere yep and then she had short hair so there you go that's true but then yeah. she got her long hair back again by season seven yeah and also odo didn't turn into a rat as much as we expected i think out of the gate and you mean that in the literal sense not not the figurative sense because of course he did go over to the uh, changelings uh at a certain point camp <laughs> <laughs> that's what i mean yes the uh the yeah. literal rat <laughs> okay okay um you brought up the lawyer thing um are we gonna yeah. get samuel t cogley to the rescue um, that's what i was thinking <laughs> nice that'd be amazing be, it, who, who would you be your your casting dream uh for in that role oh my god that is an excellent question like it's going to be a character actor type 
Uh, you're not casting a matinee idol in that role. Because I think it was Alicia Cook Jr., I think, played him originally. So it's going to be like someone who's older, kind of diminutive. Cam? Oh, man. If Leslie Jordan was still alive, I think it'd be <laughs> Leslie Jordan. Okay. Yeah. It has to be someone who's, like, recognizable, right? Like, I don't think they would go with, like... Well, I'm thinking, like, it's going to be kind of like a Carol Kane-like casting. Someone who's audiences have some sort of like at least slight um relationship with is that who she's meant to be cogly in disguise <laughs> uh, yeah sure sure she could just like open up those books at a certain point uh yeah like to me the fact that they were just like teasing this lawyer that's like i need to find this lawyer or the lawyer and i'm like this feels like the kind of thing you tease because you're going to have this fun nod to court martial coming up uh, yeah but was cogly even that great of a lawyer he won the case, didn't he? Uh, okay, on a yeah, technically, sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe this is like a real like open shut case. Like this is a uh, an easy one for Cogley to figure out. Okay. Okay. Cool. Um, my my, my guess, like, do we really want to have like Una in detention beyond episode two? Like, I I think this has got a. I just, it it, it almost feels as if we're going through the motions like she will be reinstated the, the show's gonna throw me for a loop if she's not reinstated by the time we get to episode three i'm wondering if they're gonna start this season the way they did with discovery season uh three where you have the premiere where it's in this case it's more of a spock story and then the second episode will be pike resolving the una thing the way they split season three discovery where episode one was about burnham landing after mm -hmm. she'd appeared in the future and then the second episode is about the rest of the crew I think that's kind of a smart way to do it because honestly, like I liked that this particular episode didn't do what I expected, which is that I think by the end of the first season, you and I probably both assumed that, well, the premiere is going to be about clearing Una's name. And that's what the first hour of the season will be about. And I appreciated that. Yes, they teased it. Yes, they had Pike on screen for a little bit, um, setting up that more would come in, with that story. But then it just spun off in an entirely different direction. And I was okay with that. Like, there's not a lot of shows, I think, that would, you know, have your lead, Anson Mount, pop up for, like, five minutes and then be like, eh, we'll get back to him later. Um, well, Star Trek Discovery, Cam. Star well, Burnham opened it, though. Burnham was the first episode of the okay. season. You're, you know, you're, you're totally right there. Yeah. Um, what's up with Mabenga? Yeah. <laughs> is is he dealing with kind of the, the, the emotional fallout of giving up? his daughter in order to ensure that she lives for all eternity are they are they struggling with this character to find something for him to do the problem is it, he, he's such a like the presence of the actor is so great yeah i like it whenever he's on screen but i just wonder if he's more of that utilitarian character that we get like more from like beverly versus kind of a a, a key force driving force within the show like mccoy was yeah, because like, you know, season one was driven by him wanting to save his daughter. And then his daughter went off to the nebula and lived happily ever after. So it's like, okay, <laughs> season two, what do you do with that character? And it seems like they're introducing that he has some trauma from the war. He apparently carries this like vial to give himself like Jason Bourne, like superpowers at all times. Cam, that was so stupid. Cam, that was yeah. the dumbest thing I saw in this episode that was the worst part of the episode i agree um and it's one thing if you want to do it quickly but like they really prolonged it for like a really <laughs> really long fight sequence that it was staged okay but not well enough to justify the length of it but yeah Cam, which character on which main character on this show does not have super strength at this point well yeah and it's like so M mabenga is apparently like traumatized to a level where he has to carry this with him at all times just in case so i guess like season one he had that vial like in his pocket at all times in every story so I, okay fair enough but I, w I wonder if this is just the 23rd century equivalent of a rock star energy drink <laughs> yeah but he's always ready to go as much as i'm willing to like just Put the cannon aside, and sure, let's take some little diversions here or there. This one did make me question, like, why did people not use this more often in other, like, future Star Trek shows? I'm sure there's examples where this would have come in pretty darn handy. 
this is why I think it was pretty stupid. Like, I just, it made me kind of like, like, I, I know they wanted like a cool action sequence, but I, I to me, it's just a little bit of a stretch. And also, like, it, it's, um, it, fight sequences, like choreographed fight sequences, not really why I'm watching and enjoying Strange New Worlds. I remember watching the, uh, the uh, 4K special features of season one. Mm. Uh, Anson Mount was talking about in the premiere, there was that ongoing like kind of long fight sequence in the alien corridor in episode one when they uh when the humans were made as being aliens and uh he said he had to like practice for a long time with all the fight choreography you watch that scene it's not very exciting it's not particularly well directed you know it's just like just people throwing like rando punches. I was just like, I'm like, okay, it didn't do much for me. And, and same with this, you know, uh, team up with Chapel and Mabenga here. The most memorable moment of the entire sequence of them on that uh, Jason Bourne cocktail was the moment where they opened the trap door and the camera tilted around as they went through. I was like, oh, that's kind of a cool shot. That has nothing to do with the fight sequence whatsoever. <laughs> and I think they want me to be like thinking, man, that was a badass fight. That that's the thing that kind of bug me as well because it's it's directing that brings attention to itself but it leaves me wondering like well why'd they do that what was the intention behind that and and was it mm. to signal like okay now we're on the juice you know maybe that's my way of interpreting it like it, it kind of threw me though and i don't know it, uh, i don't know uh that said it was pretty cool being on the kind of crossfield uh starship was it not it was yeah like I, I liked, honestly, like the problem solving once Mabenga and Chapel kind of came down from their high, <laughs> like the whole jettisoning themselves into space stuff. I thought that was actually really dramatically gripping. I know they're going to be saved, but it's kind of like I think of, you know, the episode, say, the Doomsday Machine from the original series where Kirk is on the other ship and he's going to crash it into the uh, Doomsday Machine. And it's like we know that Captain Kirk is not going to die, but the way they build suspense there with the music, the cutting back and forth, the fact that transporters aren't working, really effective. And I thought like this episode did a good job with them having to jettison themselves with the one minute of basically before they would die in space, the Enterprise coming in to save them. All really effective. I wish they'd kind of relied more on that sort of dramatic storytelling versus like the fight stuff, which I do think was a little bit of having their cake and eating it too, where it's like, we want to show more to the Klingons than just them as bad guys, but we also want, you know, our heroes fighting Klingons in an episode, and this was a way to do it. Yeah. Um, Spock's reaction when they blew up that crossfield class ship, which it kind of looked like Discovery, at least the saucer section, but it was definitely like a kind of a different aft section that they had going on there, uh, distinct. Although I'm guessing they just went over to the... Uh, the other studios where Discovery is shot and they just kind of use those corridors, right? Probably. Yeah, that yeah. would. Yeah, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right. But uh, Spock's reaction, you know, like I like like a pre colonar Spock, you know, mm -hmm. where he is a little bit more emotional. It, it's, you know, Vulcans don't deny that they have emotions. It's just they're in control of their emotions mm -hmm. here. And seeing Spock a little less in control of his emotions throughout this episode, whether it's, you know, his uh, rocking out on the Vulcan Lear until he spots Chapel come in and his uh, <laughs> heart uh, 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 BPM uh, kind of goes up from there. It's like, like, okay, okay. It's, I like seeing Spock a little out of control. I don't want them to overuse that though, because then at a certain point it lose, loses its efficacy as kind of a dramatic um, way of telling stories. I feel like with Spock, they are going to build towards some sort of resolution by the end of this series of him becoming more of the, you know, controlled and calm Spock we saw on the original series. That is my guess. But I am liking this, you know, more emotional or at least a Spock that is like struggling with his emotions on the show because I have to say, like, I think for Ethan Peck, this is probably way more fun. I think if Ethan Peck had signed on and they're like, can you please replicate what Leonard Nimoy was doing with the character on the original series? That's kind of like a thankless assignment because you're only going to be compared to Leonard Nimoy. 
But the fact that they saw the Spock smile in the cage and were like, okay, that is an avenue we can travel with this character and we can have more with this relationship with Chapel. I think it's just fantastic. And it's showing me material with Spock that I just, I never thought would ever happen. It never occurred to me we would get a Spock like this that would become a lead character on an ongoing Star Trek show. But I think it's great because even though it's different, it still feels like Spock. Well, I also think back to that short Trek uh, Q&A in which you have Spock and uh, Una Chen Riley stuck on the turbo lift together after kind of a, a, a breakdown there. And they're there for hours. And by the end of it, she's, she's telling him, like, some, she's giving him advice. She's saying, like, look, you're weird. Yeah. Embrace that weirdness, <laughs> but kind of hold it close to your vest at times. And you'll, you'll be more successful just in terms of doing your duties and, and engaging with the crew. And I, I think that's good advice. Has he followed that advice, though? Hmm. Hmm. He does. This Spock does seem more social to me than the yeah. Spock of the original series. Like, when you have that scene, even just with him with the, the crew, when they're kind of deciding a, about stealing the Enterprise, that did not feel like a Spock you would get later. So I guess he is kind of like letting his guard down more around this particular crew, and you even think of just some of those walk-in talks he had with Chapel in um, season one, as well as I think with Ahura a couple times, that feels like a Spock who is kind of showing himself more so. That's why I really think they're going to build to a reason as to why Kirk is the person he's willing to drop his guard around. Like, and the only person. It is the arc of this series like more of a hardening of Spock? as the character gets closer and closer to the TOS era? Because, I'm sorry, I, I just, okay, the real, like, smarmy, dry, sarcastic remarks, kind of like almost dick <laughs> responses that Spock would give to people on the crew in TOS, Yeah, they're not really coming here so far in Star Trek uh, Strange New Worlds. No, and I mean, you think of Galileo 7, uh, an episode, you know, we reviewed, we did a separate episode on that i'll post a link in the show notes to that but like that spock is not the spock of this episode so like i'm trying to think of like what would lead to that because colin r is like for the you know the motion picture um he doesn't really have much contact with his father so that's not going to tie into it too much like what is the journey that leads him to become this more controlled spock is it just entirely going to be tied to the issues he has with nurse chapel and that relationship and what it does to him that might be it you know I, i'm looking forward to seeing another uh, appearance of to um the the actress who played her in season one was fantastic there, there's legit chemistry and there's legit like conflict it, it, it all seemed organic mm. rather than you know convoluted although <laughs> there was that body swap episode that that, that, <laughs> that is kind of the definition of uh convoluted but um it, like but but their dynamic is complicated but it feels real yeah it does and i think the same thing with the chapel relationship and it feels to me like there's so much to read into uh, magil barrett's performance in the original series about like the hurt she feels from spock but you obviously don't get that off his character but i think this show is doing a really interesting um job of setting up much more of a reason why she feels so connected to him in the original series. It's going to go, I think, this show much further in terms of giving us way more material than we ever got on the original series. But I think like it's going to be interesting once this is said and done to jump over and watch the original series and kind of see like just the transition between the relationship between the two shows. Is this the same Nurse Chapel? No, it's definitely not. No. I know. It's not like she was like that this like really well-developed three-dimensional character on the original series but uh look i i'm enjoying this iteration of nurse chapel more because she is more developed she's quirkier she uh has more layers as well so and it's not necessarily like i want to see the character's journey turn into what we get in the original series where it's let's be honest it's more like 1960s television writing of women characters mm -hmm. in those kinds of stereotypical ways. Yeah, it's much more of the kind of admiring from afar personality coming from Chapel in the original series. She had backbone on that show, though, and she was someone who did have 
like she would kind of like go back at Spock the odd time on the show. So like even though there's kind of morsels to dig into in the original series, I like that this show is giving me way more to just read into those scenes, even if it wasn't intended in the first place. All right, Cam. So I think this is a uh, fantastic uh, start to the season. Uh, things we know we can look forward to. I, I don't think I'm, I'm spoiling anything that hasn't already been blasted out there and that we haven't already been talking about throughout the run of the podcast. But um, some sort of resolution to uh, number one's uh, predicament, um, the, the return of one uh, James T. Kirk. Mm-hmm. And then um, I, I, I'm really pumped for the... Uh, the crossover episodes with uh, Lower Decks. And also, Cam, did you notice that there is an episode title named um, Subspace Rhapsody? Uh, should that be the new name of uh, our <laughs> podcast? Well, we did have a rap song. So, uh, yeah, it's not too far off. Um, yeah. Huh. I think that would work. Yes, let's do that. Um, how long do you think they are going to dangle the Kirk teases? Because those were heavily marketed. Like, do you think that's going to be in, like, I don't know, episodes two, three, or four, or do you think that's going to be later in the season? I'm guessing a little later in the season. Mm. Just, you know, not, not too, maybe more in the middle of the season, I, I would say. Um, I'd like to get at least one Sam Kirk appearance yeah. that precedes any Kirk's, uh, James T. Kirk stuff. Yes. Like, yeah. like reestablish that character as an independent character from his far more famous brother before we bring the brother in. It's so weird that Sam Kirk is the more charismatic character on this show so far. <laughs> oh my god. Like I know. You know, of all the things when Strange New Worlds was starting that I wanted to see in this show, I never dreamed that I would be rewarded with like a fleshed out, interesting and charismatic Sam Kirk. <laughs> like that, <laughs> forget it. Never occurred to me. You know, you have Laon as like a, a uh, descendant of Khan. I'm like, uh, okay, like uh, that's something I maybe would have in some way expected at some point because they love going back to that augment sort of story. But like Sam Kirk, I just literally never thought we would get any mention of really again. I think they made like, uh, I, I think what happened is that they found like a great actor to play Sam Kirk and they really should have like kind of held on to him to play James Kirk. And I look, it seems as if they're going for a name and Paul Wesley, um, they got that name and it just, at least the one appearance we saw, I just, it, it seemed like a charisma vacuum there. Yeah. Well, that's my hope is that season two really makes that character come into his own because we we need to. We can't have a Kirk that's like kind of a generic wallpaper character. That just would not work. Oh, also noteworthy, actually, we didn't mention, we had the introduction in this episode of Chief J taking over from Chief Kyle. Um, apparently behind the scenes information on the commentary, but Kyle, the actor who played Kyle, got another job, so won't be on the season. So we got Chief J now. I well, can't wait to see how his um, transporting technique differs. <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, I was going to mention, actually, I just saw today they announced the Picard Season 3 Blu-ray set. Did you see that announcement? I missed that. No. Uh, what, what, what's the, the big splash there? Tell me. Well, the almost lack of splash is that there's no 4K announcement. It's just a uh, okay. Blu-ray, special edition Steelbook Blu-ray, and then the DVD. Uh, two and a half hours of bonus features, including a, you know, gag uh, moments, you know, of characters cracking up on set. That's uh, always my favorite, right? Um, sure, yeah. Uh, mostly featurettes. There's one on Vatic. There's one about, you know, reassembling the crew. Again, it would always note featurettes. So I'm like, okay, these are going to be basically like EPK type things of like, you know, 10 minutes of people talking about how much fun it is to be back on Star Trek. There is a um, something, I think it's called like the last G uh, generation Q&A or something, which is very vaguely defined as just people who worked on the show. So, you know, behind the camera and in front of the camera, people talking about the season. I have no idea if this is going to be something that's very insightful. There will also be episode commentaries. I'm going to wait for the reviews to see if the special features are worth it because the special features on Strange New Worlds were not very good. I'm glad that I bought it just for having like 4K physical media. Yeah. I I, I mean, I was pretty intent on, on getting Picard Season 3 in physical media. I, I was hoping for a 4K release though. And uh, 
look, I, I, I just, I, I need the special features to be better mm-hmm. than what we got in Strange New Worlds. I, I, I thought the uh, special features on uh, Lower Decks far, far better than we yep. got in Strange New Worlds. It's just very Bush League. I was ge- like genuinely surprised by how Bush League those special features were in Season 1. Yeah, uh, and this is coming out November 20th, I think it is, or it's late November, because uh, it's different depending where you live. But um, Strange New Worlds, it was that weird circumstance where, like, the Blu-ray came out, and then, like, we got the 4Ks, like, two months later. Is is that going to be, like, their new way of dealing with this? Is, like, a prolonged release date for the 4K versus the Blu-ray editions? That just seems like a weird strategy. I, you're asking me to get in the head of uh, everybody from marketing to manufacturing, and the answer is I have no clue. Yeah. I have no clue why that was. Yeah. I went through the uh, comments thread on the Facebook post regarding this release, and it was just a string of people being like, I'm waiting for the 4K. Yeah. 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 And they're also putting out a three-season box set called the Picard Legacy that will have all your favorite stories from seasons one and two included with season three. Unless it's cheaper than just buying season three on its own. Uh, I'll, I'll hold off on that purchase. Can you imagine watching season two Picard in 4k? Like those effects, please no. Be like, Ooh, look smog in Los Angeles. Cool. I think that demands more of like a DVD release or a uh, perhaps just vintage VHS release. It's a super eight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's take it backwards in technology. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So next time we'll be back, of course, with a review of episode two of Strange New Worlds. And if you enjoyed this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspace pod. And also leave reviews for us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam V as in veteran of the Klingon War, Smith. You can find me at Reportin, that's R-E-P-P as in Pelia's accent, (laughs) O-R-T-O-N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. I never dreamed that I would be rewarded with, like, a fleshed out, interesting and charismatic Sam Kirk. (laughs) Like that? (laughs) Forget it.